Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Arun Singh, Director of the Department of Ophthalmic Oncology. Dr. Singh is here today to talk to us about uveal melanoma. So, welcome, Dr. Singh. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to, to join this podcast. Uh, uveal melanoma is a rare tumor, relatively speaking. We say everyone has heard about skin melanomas all the time. But if you look at all the melanomas that happen, about 15% or so are actually uveal melanomas. So skin melanoma is 85%, vast majority, and a small component is uveal melanoma. All right. And uvea is part of the eye that's inside the eye. That's, if you think about the pupil and kind of think it goes backwards lining the eye, that's the part called uvea, and melanomas arise from that. And so uveal melanoma is, is a unique disease. It's a unique type of melanoma. Um, how often do you see people that may come to you with a cutaneous melanoma that involves the eye and kind of sorting out issues related to that? That's a rare situation. So there are two or three ways we can see a patient with cutaneous melanoma and uveal melanoma overlap. One is that somebody has a history of cutaneous melanoma and they see a brown spot inside the eye and they say, oh, could this be a metastasis? That's very unlikely or unusual. And in general, metastasis happens in advanced stages of cutaneous melanoma, almost terminal stages, when the melanoma is all over the place and then they get it in the eye as part of that. So it's very obvious when they have well-developed metastatic disease to have something in the eye. The second scenario is that the patient actually has a nevus or a mole or a freckle in general words, and that's an incidental finding. And because they have cutaneous melanoma, they get alarmed and we say, oh, it's just a freckle. Gotcha. Nothing else has to be done. And the third, and that's a rare one, where there could be some kind of genetic component to skin melanoma and uveal melanoma through a germline mutation, like a genetic predisposition. That's a rare disease, but that we see time to time. And so just to give us an idea of perspective, it's 15% of melanomas from a number standpoint. How many cases do we, we consider a year? So in the United States, we expect about 2,000, 2,500 new cases of uveal melanoma per year. We see about 150 of them in, in the coli, yeah. Okay, so you're pretty busy seeing these. Yeah, we do uh, see them. They arise in the iris, they can arise in ciliary body, they can arise in choroidia. So we see that many cases of uveal melanoma, new cases. So what, uh, what, would be, what are typical symptoms? How would people suspect they have a uveal melanoma? There is no specific symptom of uveal melanoma. Symptoms are all very non-specific, such as oh, blurred vision, some floaters, some flashes. I do want to alert that there are many thousand causes, more common causes of those conditions than uveal melanoma. But uveal melanoma could be causing any of those. And when they go for a checkup, uh, they will find some kind of a growth or a tumor inside the eye that has brownish color typically. And they say, oh, this could be melanoma. And that's how patients kind of get diagnosed or suspected, and then we diagnose them. The other is uh, they go for routine examination for glasses or when they're diabetic or something along that when they're 60, 65 years old, and they get a dilated eye exam, and so dilated means the pupil has been dilated, and somebody looks at the retina inside and finds a mass, which is an incidental. 
that's the other way of diagnosing melanoma. So it's suspecting. And then, of course, we diagnose them with imaging and, and biopsies, really. And which, uh, which is most common? Do you, do you see more patients that are incidentally found to have them, or do most people come in with symptoms? Most of them come with symptoms. But more recently, because of uh, wide availability of fundus cameras, so many optical services and opticians have bought these cameras where they can take a picture of the eye. And once they take a picture of the, it's a panoramic picture of the retina. And once they take a picture, they see a brown spot that can alert you to that melanoma, which may have been missed on examination, but shows up on a picture. So we see several such cases, but still overall, it's more symptom related. Yeah. Excellent. I guess to uh, sort of temper people not being overly concerned with what might be common symptoms, but not be dismissive and miss something. What, when should someone get an exam? So what, you know, if someone has symptoms, what should trigger them to go to see their ophthalmologist and, and have that exam to, to see? So melanoma is not going to cause pain. Melanoma isn't going to cause redness. It's not going to cause irritation. isn't going to cause a mucus discharge from the eye. It all has to do with vision. So either it's blurry vision, distorted vision, some flashing lights, some floaters, those things. But most of them would have a more common retinal cause, like a vitreous detachment, retinal tear, diabetes, hypertension, those things affecting the retina. Melanoma will be way down in the list of it. Yeah. How do we make a diagnosis? So diagnosis of melanoma is clinical in the sense that it's based on examination, based on imaging. Uh, unlike other parts of the body, we can actually see the tumor directly. So once we dilate the pupil, we can examine all of retina. And this tumor is not in the retina, it's under the retina, but we can see it directly. And it has characteristic features on examination, on photographs, on ultrasonography, on the fluorescein angiogram, and ICG. We have our own set of tests. And based on all that, we can pretty much diagnose uh, uveal melanoma with 99.4% accuracy. And so the, the misdiagnosis rate is very low. That's good. And in cases where we can't make a diagnosis, then we have techniques of biopsy, so we can biopsy them. So usually it does not require a biopsy? Usually it does not, yeah. Excellent. So person has uh, some symptoms, they come in diagnosed. Um, what are the treatment options? A treatment option depends upon the size and the vision potential in the eye. But in general, we would say that First of all, you say, well, is it really melanoma or is it just a big freckle inside the eye? So cases that are going to bother the line and we can't be very sure about the diagnosis, we'll observe them. So it's reasonable to observe smaller tumors where the diagnosis is not clear cut, for example. And, but once the diagnosis is made based on history, growth, or imaging, etc., then the most common treatment is really a radiation treatment. When we say radiation, it's a brachytherapy where we take a radiation implant and uh, stitch it to the eyeball where the tumor is, right at the base of the tumor. So the, so the radiation is focused onto the tumor with least collateral damage. So that's the most common treatment. Um, other uh, treatments, if the tumor is large and if there is no vision potential in the eye, then we talk about removal of the eye. And tumors that are located more towards the front of the eye, such as in the iris or ciliary body, which is just where the lens of the eye is, then those can be resected. So we can resect smaller tumors like that too. So what do you see as the, the, the drawbacks of our current therapies? What, where, 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 where do we fall short and where do we need to, to make progress? Yeah, so the, the radiation has been around for uveal melanoma almost 100 years. 
And that's because we have a control rates almost 95, 99%. So our local control rate is very, very high. So it's very hard to come up with new treatments that are to surpass something that's highly effective. I'm just going to jump in and say I'm exceedingly jealous. <laughs> yes. In all oncology, in all of radiation oncology, choroidal melanoma or uveal melanoma radiation has the highest control rate, 99% in our, in our series here that we published from Cleveland Clinic. Uh, overall, 95.6%. Smaller tumors, 99% control rates over the last 15 years. So that's very high. Of course, there is a collateral damage from radiation, and that's called a radiation retinopathy. It is, um, affects vision. And there is a trial starting later this year, a multicenter trial, uh, to figure out the treatments of radiation retinopathy, how to mitigate it, how to treat it once it happens. And Cole is taking the lead on it because we are going to be the main center driving the trial. When we think about treatment, most of the time we get local control. In those cases where it spreads outside of the eye, where does it go and how do we treat that? So metastasis is not uncommon. Again, depends upon the size and the genetic profile of the tumor. And there are ways to predict that using biopsies and other new genetic molecular techniques to prognosticate each case. And the most common site for metastasis is actually liver. So it does not go to the brain, it doesn't go to the other eye, it doesn't go to any other place. And so we do liver-directed imaging in patients based upon their risk profile. And uh, if it goes to liver, then there are ways to treat it. Uh, there is laser ablation, surgical resections. And just about last month, a new drug has been uh, approved by the FDA uh, called Chemtrac which is uh, effective in prolonging survival in patients with uh, uveal melanoma that's metastatic to liver. So there are, there is exciting things happening in this field. Yeah. yeah. What role is there for things like immunotherapies or genomic therapy sort of analysis like you see with cutaneous melanoma? So we do all those things in uveal melanoma too. We have a, a genetic markers for prognostication. We can say, well, if you have this kind of mutations, uh, you are likely to have metastasis, and if you have this kind of mutational profile, then you are less likely to metastasize. So there are gene markers or mutational markers for metastasis that are commercially available. Uh, before that, we were doing in-house kind of research work, and now there are commercial tests available. We use them all the time. And regarding a treatment for metastatic melanoma, is a immune therapy, CD3 T cell engager as a new new mechanism. But the immune therapies that are effective for cutaneous melanoma that do not work for uveal melanoma. Right. That I do want to point out, yes. Right, right, yeah. I guess that's what I wanted to clarify as well, just to people automatically think of checkpoint inhibitors and things for cutaneous yeah. melanoma. No, so the genetic mechanisms are very different in uveal melanoma. Uh, so melanoma is a common word between cutaneous and uveal, but they are basically different diseases. And so what works for cutaneous melanoma doesn't work for uveal melanoma at all. And I guess that brings me to the question of who should see you or someone at Cole for uveal melanomas? These are rare tumors. These are things that, of course, people might be in a metastatic setting, be a bit fooled by the fact it's melanoma in the, in the name. Who should be seen here? So for primary uveal melanoma treatment of the eye or anything related to the eye or side effects of immune therapy or any aspects of that, they should certainly see me for that. Again, these are rare diseases, so not at any institution you're going to have people who know about uveal melanoma. You're not going to have five people dealing with melanoma because you only have only so many cases in a year. So 
only big institutions can run a service like what we have here that started almost 20 years ago. So if they have anything related to uveal melanoma, they should come and see me. If they have something related to metastatic disease of uveal melanoma, then we have two main oncologists that we have identified or we partner with. Uh, one is Dr. Kennedy, and other one is Dr. Funchain. So we kind of work with them and trying to establish uh, their treatment protocols for metastatic disease. And of course, we also have a strong liver group and can do liver. Yeah, so we have people who are doing, uh, so Dr. Berber did our liver ablations. We have people doing uh, uh, immunoradiation as uh, infusions of liver, people with radiation oncology. But we start with Dr. Funchin and Kennedy, and based upon the tumor location and tumor burden, tumor size, et cetera, which organs are affected, they will figure out the best treatment and they will direct the patients. You're doing really well with local control. We have a new drug for metastatic disease. Um, what, what's the biggest gap? What, what, what do we need to be focusing on next in uveal melanoma? One is, like I said, the efficacy is high, so we are looking for treatments that are not radiation-dependent. So we say, well, radiation retinopathy happens, and as of now, it's not treatable. Can we develop new treatments that replace radiation? So there is a trial starting in that field. There has some preliminary work already done. There would be a phase three trial, randomized study coming up, I think later this year or next year, uh, talking about uh, laser-directed, the viral-loaded particles and laser energy being delivered to the tumors. So that's uh, a trial coming up. It's promising for smaller tumors. So that's one. So you're trying to move away from radiation so you don't have any radiation retinopathy at all. And second is to say, can we reduce the dose of the radiation because the radiation complications are dose-dependent? So we're coming up with scenarios of what, how much dose can we reduce and still have good control. So we are starting to kind of come down on the dosing that's given. The third is about the newer implant designs so that the radiation is more focused and less collateral damage, just the way the radiation physics is. So we have some newer designs that we are using now. And there, the last is when mentioned about the trial, where we have a prospective study uh, where we are going to look at the natural history of the disease, of radiation, retinopathy, and drugs, etc. I want to point out that we are an orphan disease, and it's very difficult to get funding to do major trials. So that's why it's taken so long and you know so difficult to make huge advances in this field of rare diseases. And uh, you, I'm sure, realize in other parts of other rare diseases as well. Yeah, absolutely. I guess from a radiation standpoint, um, this is being done by brachytherapy where you're applying radiation and you mentioned trying to make that more focused. Is is there been work done on other ways to do focal radiation like proton yes. radiation? Yeah, so proton beam radiation has also been uh, used for some years now and it's again limited by the availability of proton so there are proton centers in Boston, some place in San Francisco. The one in Cleveland hasn't been adapted for use of ice because it needs special modules and special ways of delivering it. So again, it's limited by the cost. Proton, as you know, is very, very expensive. And to have it only for the eye is just not viable. So unless it's been used for some other tumors, brain tumors in children, etc., and there's a wider acceptance of proton or, or data to say that it's superior than uh, radiation or normal radiation, it hasn't really caught on so widely, yeah. Got it. You mentioned the the laser, the viral particles. Certainly a, an important part, again, of cutaneous melanoma would be injection of, of, of tumors with 
a virus that then elicits an immune response, things like TVEC. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar things being considered for realizing that some of the things that work in cutaneous uh, melanoma don't work in uveal, but are there similar mechanisms to do sort of viral injections in the into the uveal melanoma? So this viral injection is virally just a capsid. It's a human papilloma virus capsid. It has so there's no DNA or nothing, and it's just a capsid, and it's loaded with a dye, and that's injected into the eye, and that the particles bind to the melanoma cells preferentially than normal retina or the rest of the eye. And then when you shine the laser, that picks up only the dye. So the laser is delivered specifically or preferentially or exclusively to the melanoma that's been targeted. Pretty clever. That's the mechanism, yeah. It's a, it's a uh, new company that's been now trading and all that. It's a, a publicly traded company. Yeah. And, and I guess I'll, in terms of uh, mechanisms, of course, as an ophthalmologist and a, a surgeon, I saved that one for last. Um, any you mentioned about surgery being a component of things in the the front part of the eye, um, you know, oftentimes in any given um, any given thing, more minimal surgery has, of course, been the key. Um, has there been in consideration of surgeries in that back part of the eye to to, to remove? Maybe somebody gave you a tip. Yes, we did come up with a minimally invasive surgery for iris resections almost fifteen years ago. And we have done almost 70 cases or so. We published our first 22, 25 cases some years ago. Yeah, so just think about gallbladder surgery and you're doing laparoscopic approach with multiple holes and you go in there and you're able to remove and patient recovers very well. Imagine same way you're making tiny one millimeter incisions in the cornea and entering the anterior chamber of the eye and cutting the iris, removing the tumor and suturing it through those tiny holes and having good margin controls, good controls, and very good recovery, 2020 vision, yeah. Considering the anatomy of the eye and the lens and things, is there is there any consideration of being able to do similar things in the, the retinal area of the eye as well? Yeah, so that's, that surgery is called endoresection. The issue is that we really do not want to disseminate cells as we are cutting them. And it's difficult to get wide margins. So in cutaneous melanoma, say, I want two centimeter margin. Well, you have so much skin, you can cut it. Well, two centimeter is like most of the eye. So there you go. So you can't have a high margins. And therefore, it's a little more challenging. Yeah. So And the, the uvea is the most vascular tissue of the body. And so the moment you touch it, it bleeds. So you have this bleeding risk, margin risk, and risk of tumor dissemination. So all that has hampered the role of or popularity of endoresection. Gotcha. You really don't want to cut through melanoma uh, inside the eye. It's just going to spread all over. Very good. Any other uh, new advances you're particularly excited about at this point? So this is, one is radiation retinopathy. So really the control rate is no problem. We have 99% control and it's, this treatment has been around for 100 years. So there are people in my business who are very familiar with it and very comfortable doing it. So we don't have to learn new techniques. It's all there. All we have to do is find a way to reduce the complication. So I think I'm really excited about that. I'm the PI for this trial that's going to start out. And it's a 600-patient trial supported by the DRCR network, NEI. It's almost a $12, $15 million study, and it's fully funded. Wow, that's impressive. That's a lot of patients for a yeah. rare disease. But we're going to have, it's a multi-center, so we'll have approximately 10, 15 centers contributing cases yeah. to it over a three-year period. So 
I'm excited. So finally, there is some money coming through some different mechanisms. Very and good. we need all that to do the trials. Wow, yeah. That's impressive. Well, I certainly appreciate all of your, uh, your insight. This is, uh, this is uh, an area that a lot of people don't know a lot about. And anytime people think cutaneous melanoma, it's, it's always kind of a scary thing. But um, great to hear that you have new therapies and, and good control with uh, uveal melanomas locally. Good luck with your trial. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. To make a direct online referral to our Tossig Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash cancer advances podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.